Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Grayscale Gorilla Podcast. Hope everyone's doing well. Chris Schmidt, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. For whatever reason, all three of us are in freezing rooms, and only Nick has a good excuse for it. I'm cold. I'm, I'm up here in the mountains. I'm doing my yearly road trip up here skiing, pretending I'm a ski bum, crashing on couches. So uh, if my internet goes out, it's I'm going to blame it on the on the mountains around here. Chad Ashley, you look warm. How are you feeling? I'm getting warmer. Uh, I, I like it. I know. I, I was going to say, dude. Did oh, I can grab mine. Did we plan this? <laughs> I don't know. So for those of you at home, we're wearing matching Twitch sweatshirts, which we seem to, you see these on our, our podcast all the time. And that's because I don't remember if it was Seagraph or NAB. I think it was NAB. Yeah, NAB. NAB, the Twitch guys, the motion design team at Twitch brought us these swag bags. And man, these sweatshirts are comfy. They're so comfy and they're just that nice extra amount. They're, they're not bulky and hard to wear. You can just wear them all the time. Yeah, they're super soft. But when, when you're cold, you put on a Twitch hoodie. You lost your drawstring like I did, huh? Oh, yeah. I mean, that thing's first to go. Yeah, I think goes. I bite it in my sleep. I don't know, what's, I don't know where those things go. You want us to uh, oh, promote? Your, I'm going to grab mine. You want to promote your brand? Just send us these. Uh, they have to be comfy sweatshirts, and then we will wear them <laughs> on the show. That's to have good logos. Yeah, number be, one. Cool, cool group of people, mm-hmm. and uh, and so this uh, episode is brought to you by uh, the motion design team at Twitch. Thank you, guys. <laughs> I was gonna say it's brought to you by Twitch hoodies. But Twitch yeah. hoodies. I don't even know what Twitch is, but I like their hoodies. Uh, thanks, guys. Thanks for keeping us warm, keeping us uh, looking good. I appreciate it, uh, and thanks for using our stuff. It was really cool to meet you guys. Um, they, you know, th- those teams are popping up more and more. Uh, I know we talk a little bit about it on our podcast where. So many teams are building inside of companies, and Apple has their own motion design team, and and uh, Dropbox has their own big team, and Twitch has a team, and everyone has these awesome little like nimble teams that are not instead of doing client work and working on a bunch of different brands and all that, they're just like killing it inside these companies. So to all of you out there doing that, um, I hope hope you're having a great day. Frankly, I hope you have good hoodies. I mean, that's really the the, the whole the whole thing here. Um, while my internet still works, I uh, I wanted to uh, welcome everybody to the podcast, and uh, we got a little bit of follow up. Today's podcast is going to be um, after we get through some news. The main topic today is going to be all about cameras. Now, you, you might not know, Grayscale Gorilla started as a photo blog, <laughs> and so photography has been a big part of my life. We're not 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 going to talk about DSLRs today. We're going to talk about how. Uh, 3D cameras are more important than you might think. It's something that could be overlooked. We're going to be talking about how to add emotion to your cameras. And just some of the things that I've learned over the last 10 years, a lot of it from Chad Ashley, uh, who's who's in the room. And um, we're also going to be talking about a plugin we're really excited about toward the end of the podcast as well. So stay tuned for that. Um, before we get to all that, before we get to cameras, before we get to all that fun stuff, uh, we got Render Wars news. Is that correct? We have a, a small update, nothing insane, but I figured it's been a while since I did one, so we might as well we might as well do a Render Wars update. Render Wars. Render Wars. Chris isn't doing the sound effects this time. Oh, Nick was on it. Oh man, dude. I was like, I, I, I didn't the do only it reason I even put one together was so I could hear you do it. The reason I was actually sitting there thinking that it's like the winter time. And right now it's a hundred year anniversary since the first world war. And in the winter, everything always slows down because everybody's buried in snow and nobody wants to go out and fight. And I was wondering if it's the same thing in the render wars. <laughs> it gets quiet during these. And as soon as the spring comes in, the big guns come out, the shelling begins and it's going to be brutal. Yeah. I don't know. I, quiet. I, 
I, I mean, it's it's sort of quiet, I guess. All right, so here we go. Uh, and I'm just going to give you updates on the big three, as I call them, which is Arnold, Redshift, and Octane. Uh, so I'm going to start with um, I'll start with Octane. So uh, Octane is, uh, I believe, up to 3.07. I believe is what it's up to now. I probably should have wrote that down. Correct me in the comments if I'm wrong. Um, they've now added a UV transform texture, which is great, because that's been something that I think people have been looking for a long time. Uh, they also have now added instance color ID support for objects and particles, which is also good. Um, in Redshift news, uh, they've now added ray trace subsurface scattering, which is brand new. But I will caveat it that it is not necessarily um, that different than the current uh, subsurface scattering in Redshift in that it is ray traced, yes, but it's still, it, it's not going to look that much different than the current uh, diffusion model. Um, they also made some improvements to the node graph editor, uh, including color coding, optimizations, all that sort of thing. Now, um, they also have denoising coming to the IPR, which I'm expecting to see that very soon. A lot of a lot of people talking about denoising. Uh, I don't. I personally don't think of it as that big of a deal. I think it'll be great for doing like look dev and your IPR, and you want it to resolve to a clean image for sure, so you can see what you're doing. But I don't know how much it's really going to play in final frame rendering. Uh, it's something that we're just going to have to wait and see because I think denoising is hard when you have animation or textures that are moving. Um, it can be difficult for the denoising to sort of figure out what's texture and what should be actually blurred out and denoised. Uh, so we'll see on that. Uh, Arnold, uh, they now support the Cinema 4D floor object, which I think a lot of people were asking for that. Hmm, um, they've got a new feature where it'll notify you if, you if there's a new release of the plugin, which is great. So you don't have to be constantly you know, monitoring this sort of news. Uh, you can just automatically see what new versions are out there. Um, they also added, this is what I'm most excited about, they included the ability to load LUTs into their IPR. So now if you are a Gorilla Grade LUT customer, you can load Gorilla Grade LUTs directly into the Arnold IPR and preview your your look right there while you're lighting and while you're look deving. Same thing goes with Redshift. Redshift's had this for... Um, uh, about a month or so, and I love it. I didn't think I would like being able to have our LUTs in the IPR, but you find yourself making decisions in lighting uh, when you can see it through your LUT or your look, if you use that sort of method like I do, you can find yourself like making better decisions because you're not worried about like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll, f I'll figure out what this looks like after I render it out and get it into After Effects or Photoshop or Fusion or whatever. So just make more informed decisions. But I think the the most impressive thing, and I think I may, may have mentioned this in the last Render Wars update uh, for Arnold, is that random walk subsurface scattering is continuously blowing my mind. I keep seeing really great examples of people using this subsurface scattering in, in Arnold, and I can't wait for it to come to Redshift. So somebody was asking me, what is random walk? Why do I keep hearing about it? What What does that mean? So. In subsurface light scattering, there are different models, different methods that renderers can employ to, to achieve subsurface. Uh, and random walk is a, a fairly new one and a very, I think, a very nice looking one compared to the diffusion models and all the other sort of like, I'm not going to get into it too deeply, but so 
random walk is not exclusive to Arnold. It, anybody can implement it. In fact, I think Cycles has it right now. Um, so it is fantastic for tiny details. If you if you just Google random walk Arnold, you're going to find some really killer images that people are putting together that just look so real. And I think that's going to be coming to Redshift probably soonish. I don't know when, but I hope they get the random walk SSS going soon because I just I think it's awesome and it's it's a lot of fun to play with. Do you have any idea how random walk behaves? I'm I'm curious because I have an idea in my head, kind of programmatically, what that might mean. But do you have any technical details? I would butcher anything super technical on it, but there's a white paper that you can go check out, or you can actually look at Pixar uh, did a whole post on FX Guide um, where they talk about their use of random walk. And I've heard that their use of random walk is actually the best looking of anybody who's implemented it yet. Uh, but that's, I think, subjective, of course. So you should check that post out. But I think it, it has to do... Um, with when the ray enters the surface, a very particular way that it bounces around. Um, and I th I'm, I'm going to butcher it, but yeah, you should read it because it, it does make a lot of sense in that um, it can actually be quite fast on large volume objects because it's not, uh, I, I God, I, I'm afraid I'm going to say it wrong, so I'm not going to say it. Basically, on large objects with not a lot of little detail, random walk can actually be faster than traditional methods. Um, but if you have like an object with a lot of little pieces and a lot of little like uh, extremities and whatnot, it'll be a little bit slower, but it looks so much better, like so much better. Hmm. I just picture all the rays like real casual, like 50s walking around inside the shoe. It's a random walk, you know? I think that's totally you totally nailed it, dude. Look up the white paper. It's just it's just this guy doing this. Yeah, just a dude walking around. Hey, I think I'm gonna walk over here now. <laughs> hey, I'm a little ray particle. Hey, look, look I'm outside of the surface. Hey, look, I'm subbed. I in made the it. Surface. Anyway, uh, so yeah, I'm excited about that because it's just man. When you see it, like ah, dude, like I retweeted this thing this dude made this Nike shoe. And if you've ever tried to make like the gum, you know what a gum shoe is like the, the, the on a tennis shoe that like brown translucent material on the bottom of a shoe. I think it's called like a gum sole. That's really hard to make that look real. It's really hard. And with the new random walk in Arnold, man, this dude nailed it on this Nike shoe. It just looks so killer. It is really nice. We're going to put all these notes here in the uh, in the show notes. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast on audio, you can head over to our website. And today's episode is number 95. Is that correct? Whoa. Yep. 95. 95. We're going to try to get up all these show notes, including anything else we talk about today. And uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, it should be in the in the uh, comments or the description. That's what they call that. Awesome. Any uh, Anything else for Render Wars? No, nope, that's all I had. Um, you know, we have an update from real. Chris as well on his uh, 3D printer. Is that thing at your house yet? It, it is not. I keep on being excited, thinking it's going to come, but you know, just production delays and how many orders they got, everything kept getting pushed back and pushed back. But my printer has officially shipped. It started in Prague and it made its way to Germany, but now it's in Louisville, Kentucky. So it's going to be here. Maybe tomorrow, one day this week for sure. I'm super excited. So I uh, mentioned it before, but uh, my plan is hopefully to 
go on to the Grayscale Gorilla Twitch and live stream as I'm trying to put it together. I got the kit, so I'm going to be checking the instruction manual, building it up, just kind of hanging out live. Anybody wants to come hang out? I even got this nice new microphone so I can kind of pick up a little bit more distant ambient audio. So I should be uh, ready to rock on that. I'm super excited. And, uh, you know, with any luck, I'll be able to start talking about some 3D printing techniques. That's great. And, and uh, yeah, and how you could use, you know, 3D packages to model. Are you going to... You gonna do some of that stuff as well, like some of your own objects? Oh, I've been designing over the weekend. Uh, I'm planning on building like all these cool like action figurey robot things. Don't know how well it'll go, but I've just been designing almost. I was setting up some espresso rigs to build like a different types of joints I might be able to make. So I was kind of working on this double jointed elbow, and there's like these little clippy pegs in it, so that it might have a little bit of like snap to it. So it's like snap, 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 snap. Like every 15 degrees, it'll naturally have a little bit of a locking position. And <laughs> I just got to start testing and doing tolerances and see if I can get working. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Very cool. But, well, yeah, go ahead, Chad. I was going to say, I'm going to have a list of toys that I want Chris to print for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take, a, I can take G-Man and just put the, the new uh, rigs that I'm designing inside them so we can have them posable sitting on the desk. Yes. Posable G-Man. Oh, man. Must. Must have. We'll see. It's going to be a long, slow process, but it's going to be fun to have around the house. That is uh, that is awesome. I can't wait for that. And yet, uh, if you are not following us over on Twitch, Chris is also still doing, um, or not still, it's just started uh, Ask GSG Season 4 over on Twitch as well. So just follow us over there, and you'll get notifications when we go live. Sweet. You have a show this week as well, right, Chris? Of course, of course. Yeah, things have been going well. In fact, I, I was even teasing this week we're going to maybe aim to do a longer one. We've done like three weeks of tiny projects, so we hit like six or seven or eight different questions in a day. This time I might try and do like one bigger one just to mm-hmm. see if we can make something look pretty and tinker around with it. I dig it. Awesome. Well, let's head on into today's topic. Um, you know, cameras have always been um, – uh, well, for me, I'll, I'll, I'll give you my – history with 3d cameras i thought that 3d cameras were the thing that you move around to just line up what you're trying to put in your scene you hit render and if you don't like it you kind of move it around or zoom it in or zoom it out and you kind of have those the 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 three buttons on your mouse that kind of controls the camera right i thought that was all that that was like the controls that you had access to you can move it around you could zoom it in and out and you could pan around your object and um it took I don't know why it took so long, but it took, uh, I feel like this story has been told a couple times, but it took Chad coming behind my desk one day and going like, dude, you are, you, you're picking the wrong camera for what you're trying to do. And I'm like, what do you mean picking the wrong camera? He goes, well, you know, you can dial in all the little settings that you have, like all the lenses and all the F-stop and all the things that you have access to on your digital camera, you have access to in 3D. I'm like, come on, really? That matter? Like it matters really? And he's like, of course. And it totally changed the way that I saw cameras. And from that day forward, I was obsessed with how much difference just choosing a different camera did <laughs> to setting up my scene. And just to just to frame our discussion a little bit today, because I think the, the the idea today is to talk about what we've learned about cameras and how much it can actually affect the feeling and the and the emotion of your scene. Um, but it, the, I just wanted to spell out my two big aha moments and kind of s- structure this. One was Chad telling me that you have all these settings in there that you can mess with. Two was watching behind the scenes Pixar documentaries 
and listening to them talk about how they set up scenes and how they did stuff. And I remember, forget which movie it was exactly. It might've been Finding Nemo, where they said, we film in, the, here, here's the gist of it. They said, in 3D, you could fly your camera anywhere around. We have full control of this camera. We could fly it through ductwork and up in the air and do big sky moves and fly it through a pack of seagulls. But they go, we rarely do that here at Pixar because we use realistic camera moves that would exist in real life because we want you to be emotionally attached to these characters. And there is a language of film that has been burnt into our heads for the last hundred years plus of filmmaking that allows us to feel the emotion of of being on eye level with a character and all that stuff, right? So they start talking about all this history of film and using a crane shot when it was appropriate and not just randomly flying a camera around. And I thought, what constraint to, to be able to literally fly a camera around and, and they, they do like a little lock off or they do like a little, you know, uh, dolly shot or they'll do a little action camera sequence that's shot on the ground and not like, you know, going through the bullet, you know, around someone's arm. Yeah. So, the DreamWorks camera. Yeah. The, which, <laughs> which, which DreamWorks does the opposite, which is they'll fly like into somebody's mouth at any moment. Um, so I just want to set up that framework because it, it, it was something that I didn't even know existed. And maybe, maybe we could start um, with Chad, like where, where did you enter into this world of like 3D cameras and, and doing it? Because you taught me most of this um, as, I, as I learned all this. I, I well, th this goes back to when I hated 3D. Like when I was in college and I was studying film as a filmmaker and, and a traditional animator, I didn't like 3D because it all was that. It was all like these wacky camera moves that like did these like fantastical things through keyholes and way up into the stratosphere in like 10 seconds. And to me, it, it was sort of the antithesis of what I loved about film, which was connecting with people and, and pulling emotion out of people and like telling a story. And yeah, you know, fantastic weird camera moves can help you tell a story. It, absolutely. But there was just something about them that just took me out of the moment. So the idea of, of when I started doing 3D, I was sort of like wanting to see if I could approach it from more of a filmmaking, traditional filmmaking perspective. When I started doing animation in 3D, I always wanted to try to emulate Pixar because they were like, you know, everybody's heroes at that time. And I think I watched the exact same documentary or back behind the scenes thing that you did. Because when they said that, it was like, for me, my aha, my aha moment was like, oh yeah, you know what? Just because you can put the camera anywhere and make it do anything doesn't mean that you should. Because like you said, there's a language of film that everybody knows. They speak it fluently. Whether they know it or not, you already speak it fluently. When you see a bad cut, that's because you know the language of film and you can tell that that's a bad cut. You may not be able to articulate why, but you can see that it's there. Just like if there's a bad camera move, you can say, wow, that feels weird or it's taking me out of the story. That's because they broke the language that you're used to. So you already know this stuff. Everybody already knows this stuff. The fact that when I walked to your desk and I saw you maybe using the default 35 mil camera, when I knew you knew cameras, you had a camera around your goddamn satchel like all the time. So I would be like, 
dude, what are you doing, man? Like you, you, you walk around all day with a camera yet you don't open up the camera that you're in, in 3d. That makes no sense to me. And, and then once you were like, wait, what is that? How does that even matter? I'm like, it's the same thing, dude. Lenses, you, you have, you can have any lens you want. Like you don't have to pay $2,000 for a prime lens. Like you have, you have it. And he was like, what? And like that mentality. See, uh, I thought early on, I thought that, um, I'm talking about physical lenses now. Like I had a Nikon camera early, you know, 2000s, like 2003, bought one of the early digital cameras. I did have that thing around my neck at all times. And I thought that you, I thought that you had to get the 50 millimeters and the 85 millimeter lenses and spend all this money to get the depth of field look, right? I thought that that's what you were paying for was this like beautiful bokeh and blurry background. And I still wasn't at the point where I'm like, oh, this is a totally different feeling. Even if you frame up the same shot with an 85 and a 20, that is a completely different look. That if you if you film a city with a 20 mil, mil lens, it's going to feel expansive. It's going to feel large. Like it's going to feel like a, a fisheye. Like you're, you're almost seeing around the corners of the world and things are going to have all these wacky angles to them. And if you film a city with a, with a 50 or a hundred, that everything's going to be straight and more flat and it's going to be more human sized. And I started to understand that that did transition into 3d and and in my mind i thought it was just you're kind of zooming in and out with this lens what's the difference between putting on a different lens and zooming well it's a huge difference <laughs> like what a what a big what a different way to capture a logo and i talk about this all the time the difference between uh making a logo let's just take something really simple um, and again, this is all stuff that uh, like dawned on me as I started putting all the pieces together. And as Chad's, you know, yelling at me, um, <laughs> I, don't think, I never yelled. Come on, man. <laughs> I'm like, okay, so let's see. Like, okay. So then I, I put a 20 millimeter lens in cinema 4d. Oh, I think, and oh. I'll finish this story and it, it, you know, it. um, I'm imagining what he's going to say, but, um, Nick's out in the mountains. So we, for, we forgive him. He's right. He's going to drop out occasionally, but anyway, I think what he's going to say, and hopefully he'll come back in before I butcher what he was going to say. It's further it, away. It's real drastic. Oh, there he is. We, we dropped you. Um, we dropped just as you mentioned the, uh, the first part of the logo that you mentioned. Oh, I'm sorry. Just, That's all good. Uh, Sorry about the internet connection, but um, I, I did a 20 mil uh, lens, spun the logo around. It had this giant, you know, Gatorade, Nike kind of like powerful feel to it. And then I took a 200 millimeter lens and I, and I did, and I pulled it, I, I zoomed it out, right? Because you have to move further away with a more zoomed in lens. And I did the same move. And then it just looked like a window screensaver. <laughs> it was just like, wink, 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 like little, no perspective, just a little spinning Flattened logo. Flattened it all out. Flattened it all out. Now, to be clear, it's the same size in the screen. I made it the same size in the screen, but the difference blew my mind. And, and as I thought more about it, I'm like, of course, the camera is right next to the logo with a 20 millimeter lens and it's 50 feet away with a 100 millimeter lens. Of course, the perspective will be different. Of course, the feeling. And, and it, it, it unlocked an entirely new way to frame things and feel things and you know zoom far away and 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 like peer in on something that has a totally different feel than when you have a wide angle camera that's right next to something that feels like emotion i started understanding that camera was another part of the emotion it, oh absolutely it, it, to absolutely. me it was like okay you gotta pick just the right song to to make the audience like 
feel, make make sure that they know that this is an epic feeling thing. So like you got to get this epic song, and then you have to do this epic keyframing movement with your with your with your camera, right? And you have to have the logo spin at just the right speed. And I felt all that, but it wasn't until I said, "Oh, the camera's a huge part of this. If I pick the wrong camera, it's going to look rinky dink." Yeah, <laughs> no matter the, that was my thing, dude. Everything looked rinky dink. That's like the way <laughs> I would put it. Like, I I just kept would see like in the beginnings of uh you know the my three D career, everything just looked like wow. These people never studied film. They never picked up a real camera. They never were on a set, and it just showed. And it just really bothered me. And it later on in my career when I started directing live action, which is what I, I did a lot of live action direction when I was at DK, I would love working with really talented DPs, director of photography, cinematographers, and just like watch what they do and, and just watch how they interpret my direction. Like, oh, I really want this to feel intimate. I want it to feel uh, like a moment and, and that's kind of what I'm after. And I would see what lens they would, they would call for. And, and, and just sort of like, learn like you're watching a golfer go through a golf course picking the clubs along the way for the particular shot that's how a good dp is a good dp is going to pick the right the right lens the right framing the right lighting and just studying how they work and and learning and like trying to trying to take some of that knowledge and put it into 3d and then watching some of my heroes like pixar and seeing what they do with the camera and it, it just like informs you as a 3d artist like okay the camera is not just something that i point at my subject and i hit render i have to think about this i have to think about the lens i have to think about how it moves i have to think about depth of field am i going to do it in camera am i going to do it in post should there be distortion should there be uh vignetting all these things what is the camera's weight is it light is it zero g is it on a dolly is it handheld is it all these things you have to sort of like imagine and because it really is a part of it even a, even a lock off needs to be thought about in terms of what what are you doing with the lens is it is it stationary is it uh are you putting a 50 mil like my go-to lens in 3d is a 50 like i'm almost always using a 50 or 55 mil lens unless i'm doing something like a logo and then i'm gonna maybe go to a 24 maybe a 17 and that's going to widen it out and make, give you that big sort of look but if i'm doing product most product if you see if you if you pay attention to product shots car commercials um even beer commercials products are generally shot with a pretty long lens unless it's a very specific larger than life product shot action i would say like action products uh maybe like gatorade or or um, something that needs to feel larger than life and a little bit sort of cartoony, they might do a wider lens, but most cars are shot with a really long lens because they don't want to distort the lines of the car. They don't want- They want it to feel like a piece of jewelry. Right. right? And so the, the other thing that long lenses do is they make things look small. And, and you, I guess you don't want a car to look small, but you want it to look beautiful and precious. And the lines that go up and over the car, you want it to almost feel like you're buying like the most beautiful diamond ring. And, and they could they could trick that a little bit, or you could trick that as the artist by zooming in on something. It makes it feel small and precious and and like rare. And if you in that wide angle, like you were mentioning, like a Gatorade, picture a big splashy Gatorade bottle coming down and all the water splashes out. They, that's usually like looking up at something, right? And it's it's hard to look up at something 
um, in the real world with a long lens because you have to get so far away. <laughs> you have from to it. dig a hole in the ground, right? So, so just by the mere fact of like the lens that you choose, you can get low and below something when it's when it like think of a building. A building looks like a building because you are so small compared to it. And the only way to take a photo of a building is to get a wide lens because you can't get far enough away from it. So all of a sudden you have this language that if you make a Gatorade bottle and you film it with a 20 millimeter lens, it looks like a building. And if you, if you take a car and film it with a 200 millimeter lens, it looks like a piece of jewelry. So like it, th this is the emotional side of things that, that um, opened up for me as an, I, I want to get to Chris too, because you know, Crit, you were just telling as we were talking about this topic that you had a similar thing during one of the Ask GSG episodes. Yeah, it was my first introduction to thinking about the camera, and in much in the same way that you said you had a camera on your on your hip ready to take a photo, but you weren't translating into three D. Like I didn't even have that context. So we were in the middle of an Ask GSG, and you started almost what you just said. You were talking about when you're near a building and you use a wide angle lens, you're going to get this particular motion, but then you have. Uh, a diamond or a watch sitting on a table and you're, you have to go and get in, you know, you're going to zoom in. And it's even like the way a person would be. It's like, they're kind of looking in and focusing in at this tiny thing. And I was like, Oh my God, I never thought about the fact that the camera was this, this emotional element, this tiny detail that you would, that's so important to change. And the fact that a lot of people who pay attention to this kind of thing, they can tell a cinema 4d render because people are using the default 35 millimeter cinema 4d camera. And to, there's there's a lot of interesting details here. I wonder, you know, uh, we've kind of talked about the daily renders and the effect, you know, like, you know, like their usefulness and, you know, how they exist and what people are learning through that process. But that does enable maybe people to have more opportunities to rapidly iterate where it's like, okay, this day I'm making this thing. How do I want to make it feel? And they get to play with cameras more. And with these third-party renderers, everybody doing in-camera depth of field, like these are tools that wouldn't have been tinkered with. I'm curious from your guys' point of view, the secondary camera type details, and maybe maybe these are the more flashy, popular at a certain point, uh, where they kind of go into uh, vogue and then go back out again. But what do you think about like lens distortions and chromatic aberrations <laughs> and uh, just the this very you know even like bokeh right. uh, bokeh effects like. Those are very secondary to like the very straightforward placement and zoom of a camera. What do you what do you guys feel about those secondary things? Uh, well, I have an opinion about all those things. I think that um, lens distortion is a, a fact of life. It, every lens has distortion. It's just that's a known thing. Um, so. Now, it's not a good idea to bake that distortion into your render. It's always good to add that in post so that you can tweak it and whatnot. But there's no such thing as like a perfectly straight line in real life shooting. You can get pretty close with some really, really long lenses and really good glass, but uh, there's always gonna be some distortion. There's always gonna be a little bit of warping. So it's always a good idea to add a little touch of that in post. And as far as like chromatic aberrations go, I think they became sort of trendy. And um, if you if you talk to any DP, they will try to minimize. They don't want chromatic aberrations. Chromatic aberrations are bad. Like that's that's just bad glass. And like that is a that's an that that's not something that you want. People add that in 
to degrade their perfect 3D render to make it look more realistic. Well, the reality is most people in real life don't want that on their shot. Like that's just that's something that they would avoid if they could. Yeah, but the, the, when you say that's the case of so many things that we add back in 3D to make it look realistic, like nobody wants nobody wants scratches on their object either, but it looks way better, right? Like, like no, well, I disagree. I think I, I know what you're saying, and but here's the thing: like, it, why adds? I, I think chromatic aberrations, the overuse or sort of gratuitous use of chromatic aberrations is going to look really dated in about five years because the lenses now that people are using in real life, there's just, they're not, they're not, they're not giving you that. So it'd be like, are you still going to add like scratchy film effects because that, yeah, no, you know? that, I guess it's a similar thing. It's like adding vinyl crackle to your right. pop track, which exactly. is cool sounding, but also like it can be dated in, in five years. Like I, I get the stylistic thing on it, but our, I think we're all talking about the same thing, which is like adding, adding imperfections to make it look more realistic is in general, probably a good idea, right? Yes, absolutely. But if it's a scratch is based on a fact, a real fact that surfaces get scuffed. Um, if you're adding like a, an insane amount of chromatic aberration to your render, and I, I, what are you saying? Like, are, are, what? How do you? If it's a creative decision, like you like the way it looks, hey, subjective, go for it, do your thing. Yeah. If you're awesome. if you're trying to make it look like it was shot. Um, maybe with uh, a, a real camera, then it, you know, pick up that camera. Does that camera actually do that? Like my phone doesn't even have. I can't. I, I have to struggle to see chromatic aberrations on my phone. So the fact that they exist in a 3D render, they need to be there for a creative reason, or a very specific, like on oh, matching this this shot, this plate that I've got. Yeah, um, makes sense. if you're trying to match something, for sure, right? You have to yeah. match the the type of lens. But and, I, I guess. I mean, to Chris's point, it's like, how do you, it sounds like Chris almost asked, like, is it a secondary thing or, or is it a part of the main process? Like, are you, here's the question. Like, are you thinking about adding distortion and lens flares as you're building your 3d comp or is that, or, or as you're rendering, or, or are you thinking of that after you're done rendering? Usually after I'm done. Uh, and again, I don't want to like pretend that I'm, Oh, after every render, I'm like adding the right amount of distortion for this particular lens. No, dude, I'm not, I'm not, I'm pretty lazy. Like I only do it when I think it makes sense or I feel like it's going to add something or I see a really straight line in an, in an object that bothers me. Um, I'll add a little distortion, chromatic aberrations. I almost always never add them. I would say, unless I'm matching a plate and the plate has it, then I'll do it. But other than that, I just I just don't like the way they look. I feel like they look. I feel, I see people overly. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? They're they're in order. They're they're trying to make it look too imperfect. And 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 I think that five years ago, maybe even ten years ago, that made sense because um the cameras and things that were people using to actually shoot real spots and, and films weren't perfect but as they got more perfect so should i think the 3d part if you're trying to make something look like it was shot on a uh, a red or an alexa or you know really good glass if you're trying to make it sh shot look, look like it was shot on like vintage 60s glass then maybe aberrations are how you do that and that right. makes total sense so it's just about doing what's right and not what's like hot or trendy, you know? 
Along yeah. those lines, I wanted to mention uh, most people are probably going to be familiar with the Nerd Writer on YouTube, who does mm. uh, some pretty great video essays. And he did a particular one called How Not to Adapt a Movie. And there's one part at some point where he's comparing the old uh, Ghost in the Shell to the new one. And there's this amazing six minute scene kind of in the middle of the movie where they're kind of just establishing uh, Neo Tokyo. And it's all these cameras like at human eyeline locked off, just looking at parts of the city. And it's just like you get to slow down and see everything. And you feel like you're there. But then in the new movie, they they don't have that type of thing. They decided to get really flashy. And there's all these giant uh like a VR and holograms everywhere. And the camera is like flying over highways and going between buildings and zipping around all over the place. And it's just like, wow, look, it's so cool. You can go around and show, look at all these amazing buildings and city and you can see all this stuff, but you don't emotionally connect to it because you can't relate to that. You don't go flying over highways and between buildings. You stand at street level and you look up at things and the city becomes a character because you decided to show the audience how they relate to the city. You you can't get emotionally invested in something magically flying around, but you can like sitting like next to a railing, looking over a river, seeing a boat pass by. And yeah, like, that, I'll, that, I'll link to that in the show notes. Cause it's a really good one. That's a, that's the, that's the exact point right there. It's, it's, it's how you experience the world. So it, it you can relate to it. And when the, when movies do that, that ride film effect is what I'll kind of call it, where they, they take a shot and they try to make it look like you're, you're at like universal studios in a ride film. It just immediately takes me out of it. Cause I'm, I'm just like, uh, you know, the only film that I think could pull that off and like did it to an extent where it, it had a pretty meaningful impact, at least on me, was Gravity. Uh, that that movie, they were it's set in space, but they were still doing things with the camera that felt like they were OK, let's pretend we're really actually shooting this out there. And and it, it just like that kind of makes the, makes my point makes your point even that they had the ability to do all those things and like fly it around and go from the moon to the earth back in two seconds and they chose not to because they wanted it to feel real they wanted it to feel like you were right there with them when this was happening um so yeah i think that it's one of those things that like you either you can either pull somebody in or you can make them feel like they're standing on the outside and that's the effect that the camera has, I think. I, I wonder if part of that is, you've talked about this at one point in the context of maybe demo reels or modeling or something, but if you go and you do a, make a beautiful model of a car and then you go and do beautiful textures on it, that a lot of people would have the intuition, to, like, I, I want to show off every beautiful curve of this car. I want to show how beautiful these textures are. But that feels cold and dead. And what you really want to do to show your amazing model is light it really well and hide it in shadow and do these beautiful reveals and try and evoke an emotion out from the model and not just show off the sexiness of the model by trying to show off the sexiness of the model you're failing to do it sometimes and that's yeah. Yeah, applying that concept to the camera like look at this beautiful city and all these crazy 3d holograms like we need to show it all off it's like right. but now i feel completely disconnected from it like I would felt yep. better if I felt like I was looking up at this gigantic imposing hologram instead of magically flying through the hologram. Yeah, yeah just you're, talk, you're talking. Go ahead, Chad. 
No, no, you go ahead. You dropped out for a little bit there. No, I just, just as I was uh, dropping there, I was hearing Chris talk about standing there on the street and looking up and seeing a, a, a world around you. And something else that I, I think about a lot is human scale is understanding that for, for most of for most of eternity cameras have been about six feet off the ground um and if you're lucky yeah you know like <laughs> five feet five foot nine or, if you're or five and a half maybe uh, so, hey 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 <laughs> five nine i mean so imagine that well, like when when you, when you light something and chris it sounds like chris was talking about like when you light something and when you look on it and you and you take a camera you have to uh put a human where the object is and say, how do I want this to look? Because, you know, think of, think of like, for me, it's like VHS cameras with my dad, with the camera on his shoulder, filming down and watching the kids play. So there's a really emotional feeling to like a dad sized person aiming down and, and capturing these little kids playing, you're seeing that you're seeing it from a human perspective. And that's a completely different feeling than if you drop the camera to the floor and you watch all these kids run around, right? That that's a completely different feeling. And I'm, I'm even picturing, I think it's a, I think it might be Toy Story. Like there's a scene where the kid comes in, the baby sister comes in and just terrorizes the bedroom. And they don't shoot that from six feet high. They shoot that from like one foot high looking up at her and making her feel like this monster that came in and just trashes the kid's room and understanding that there's a human scale of how you could place your camera to make it feel a different way really unlocked uh, um, something when, when I, when I put a logo up or even just an object and how do I want that object to feel? And maybe I already said it, but if it's small, if it's precious, if it's sad, if it's romantic, you might want to bring the camera up a little bit, uh, it, but if it's heroic and it's big and it's strong and it's you know uh, you know heavy, you might want to drop the camera down a little bit because those things are going to be bigger in 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 the world. And so, um, thinking about it in that human scale, like Chris is saying, really helped me get the emotion right. Because at the end, that's uh, that's what we're doing. We're we're trying to put an emotion in the viewer's mind with lighting and music and camera and words and, and a couple sentences, maybe our goal as, as at least in the commercial world is to, is to put the emotion into their mind that we want. And, and the camera is the, the, the thing that's capturing it. Right. So there, there's a lot there. It's so, so easy to, to get lost in those details. The, uh, when I was in college, me and some buddies would make short films and, uh, we were filming. I was, I was, I was a cameraman, and I was filming the shot where like uh, somebody pulls up to the house, and I just thought it'd be a cool shot and cool framing. And I climbed up in a tree, and I framed the camera between the trunk and these branches, like way up in the air, looking down. I just thought it was a cool framing. I didn't think at all about like the emotional impact of what that might be. And then later, when you're looking at the footage, somebody said, "Oh, it's really cool. That's like a really creepy shot." I was like, "Creepy? Why are you saying it's creepy?" And it was like, "Oh, because because it feels voyeuristic." Yeah. If you're thinking about this from the point of view of a human, like somebody is looking at you from a tree, that's a weird place for a person to be. It's automatically creepy. And I was just See, that's the I language was purely of thinking of framing and framing was not encompassing the emotion. Like the viewer puts themselves in the POV of the camera. Why would I be up in this tree? Oh, I'm sneaking around. I'm spying on this. Like I'm it's it's weird and creepy and something's up in the tree. 
And it's like, oh, wow, okay, I wasn't even thinking about things on that level. So I think that you, that you stumbled into what we were talking about before, which is you, you, after the fact, you were aware of the impact of that decision. But at the time, you just thought it was a cool angle. Now, the same thing happens if you watch a movie and you find yourself being able to predict something like, oh, I feel like this character is about to be killed or I feel like something's going to happen. It generally it's not that you have some great intuition or you've seen the movie before. It's because you know the language of film and they're setting you up. There's a, there's a voyeuristic angle coming from outside through the glass and then they cut to interior and they're leaving a lot of room in the back of the frame. Somebody's going to jump through the window and like tackle that person. You are groomed for that. That is in your brain. And it, it, all you have to do is tap into like 10% of that into your 3d work and your work is going to get so much better. Like you'll start, you start making more informed decisions about where you put the camera. How is it moving? Is there secondary motion? How much weight? How much does the camera weigh? Is there somebody holding it? Is it setting on a tripod? Is it on a dolly? What's the, what do you want to do? What kind of, what, where do you want to put the person, the POV? What's the POV? Mm, that's a good way to say it. Where, where is the audience in this, in this shot? Like where are they watching from? That's, that's a smart way to think about, about it. Um, so how, like what, what other things about cameras matter? Cause we talk about the zoom and the lens that you choose. And to me, it's, it's, it's always appropriate to just think of when you pick your camera, thinking about it in the real world. So don't think about it as a 3d camera. Think about it as like, you have all this gear and you're going to go grab, uh, a GoPro for this scene. And the GoPro allows you to get low on the ground and look up at something and, and make something feel amazing. And, or you're going to grab the, um, you know, the red with, with 4k and, and really lock it off or really put it on a, a dolly. That's really smooth. That's going to have a totally different weight and feel you're looking through a red camera and, and, and even just feeling the weight of the camera move is going to have a totally different physical emotion than a GoPro, like wiggling around. And there's not Absolutely. a right or wrong, but it, 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 it changes the perspective of the viewer. It's like filming with your, the, the, the cameras, the, the, what am I saying? Like the capture, uh, uh, on the quality, <laughs> that's the word, <laughs> the quality on these phones is amazing, right? You pull out your phone and you get these crisp, beautiful, high def 4k and in, in some instances video, but they, they, they were, are not like a red in many ways, some of it's the capture, but a lot of it is the weight and the feel and the lens you put on it. And so just by grabbing a smaller camera versus a larger camera is also going to impact the way that your, that, that the emotion will come through. And this See. is why, like when, when you guys are talking about in a, in a action scene or in a spooky scene or a creepy scene, there's like movement going on. It's a little bit handheld. It's like, you know, less professional. And then all of a sudden, if, it, if you want it to feel majestic and big and professional and, and weighty, you use a larger camera, you use a crane, you put like, they literally put weights on these cranes to make it smoother. Right. And just like make this beautiful weight shot. So that, that for me is helpful is like, imagine you have the entire, you know, camera range in your, in your room when you go to pick a camera in 3d. I think th that's a great point. Like, so in the real world, 
um, DPs and, and people out there shooting their own films, they're, they're restricted by a lot of different things. They're restricted by physics, uh, the physical space that they're in, their budget in terms of how, how expensive uh, of a camera they can afford, how many amazing prime lenses they can get. They're restricted in, in like multiple, multiple ways that we are not. So we need to sort of, I don't want to say restrict ourselves because we're not, we're, we can do anything we want. But if you want to play in that world and speak that language and, and, and bring people in, you have to start thinking about like, okay, well, what would my restrictions be? Um, if I'm shooting a product or, or maybe I'm shooting um, an interior arc viz scene, uh, I can't, I can't, physically put the camera that high because there's a ceiling here. Well, okay, well, how could I, how could I work within those confines to make the shot work? And you immediately start to think about things in a more physical way and your work starts to get a little bit more believable and a little bit more interesting and a little bit, you start to think about things in a slightly different way. Um, especially I think in, in motion design, when a lot of the times you have such a small amount of time to make an impact on someone and and pull them into a story and emotion or whatever so it's even more important that you don't have two and a half hours to make that happen you have to like make it happen fast <laughs> well it's almost like you know get pick pick two or three cameras and replicate them and in, in 3d and then use those and get comfortable with it that's almost the idea it's like get comfortable with a 20 mil a 50 and a, and a 85 you know like and, and pretend that your camera bag only has those three lenses and see what those three do and and, and like build that restriction in so um this is this is to me this is the stuff that i learned like design like composition like color theory like where to place my lights that totally changed the way that my renders looked and the way that my, more importantly, not just how they looked, but how they felt. There's a feeling when, that you get, especially in animation that you're like, okay, that is computery. Well, what's missing? And you, and it unlocks a little bit, like these little 10% changes make it more realistic. And so we're going to be talking more about this that we already have a, uh, uh, tutorial. We're going to link up here in the show notes. And I think it's called choosing the right camera or choosing the right lens in Cinema 4D, that, that already goes over some of the differences with lenses, and there's some good examples there as well, where we show you the difference between different uh, lenses. We're also working on a couple blog posts as well, and you know this is all because we've been thinking about cameras behind the scenes a lot lately, and um, we have a new plugin coming out we're really excited about, and uh, Chad, do you want to tell them a little bit more about what's, what's coming up? So this is the part we where we promote our product. Uh, if you <laughs> please stick around, uh, thank you for listening to this great discussion about cameras. But um, well, here's yeah, the, here's one the, of the thing. I'll I'll just say this real quick. If if you could you could take anything from the last hour and apply it to your scene, it will help you. You 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 will get something out of that. Oh, for sure. Um, but all of yeah, all of this also allows us to tell you about a plugin that 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 we're really excited about. That's had some really cool stuff in it. So go ahead, Jeb. Yeah. So one of the things that I've always wanted to have ever since I started doing 3D was a camera plugin that would immediately add some nice human feeling secondary motion that wasn't a complicated rig 
that wasn't something that took a bajillion plugins or tags and whatnot, and was just something that I could easily just attach to a camera that I already had and apply some really beautiful secondary motion. And so I started working with Chris uh, a while back now, we started working on this new plugin. In the middle of and, summer, I think. Yeah, and and so I came to him with the general sort of idea behind it and what I thought it could do and why I thought it was beneficial and all that sort of thing. And it started to take shape. And now um, we're ready to release it into the wild. Uh, and it's called Gorilla Cam. You may have seen us talking about it on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatnot. Uh, but the idea behind Gorilla Cam is pretty simple. It's going to breathe life into your camera. It takes your existing camera, whether it's a lock-off camera, animated camera, camera morph, even a motion camera, and it's going to add a couple of different things. There's three pillars to the Gorilla Cam that we get excited about. The most important thing I like to think is our shake system. We have a really killer shake system that can sort of emulate a very light camera and do really fast frenetic shake or it can do really low kind of slow languid sort of shake so the shake system is great tons of control over it it also has the other pillar i would say is probably our smoothing so you can take a camera that you've animated whether it's a linear keyframes or maybe you you smooth them out the best you could and you can have gorilla cam reference that camera and smooth it out even further and like really create a, a super really beautiful smooth camera like it was shot on the most perfect dolly track ever or maybe it's a steady cam type of look that you're going for um the the the, the last pillar i would say would probably be the the zoom and focal drift one thing that i think has become pretty standard these days with third-party rendering is the ability to do depth of field in camera, not always having to rely on doing it in post. So why not be able to have that focal plane drift a little bit like it does in the real world? In the real world, if I'm racking focus on something that's you know a foot in front of me and then I have to rack to somebody in the back of the scene, I'm not gonna get that perfect. I'm not gonna, I might overshoot the focus a little bit and have to come back. And so that, that little bit of nuance and human element is built into Gorilla Cam. You can overshoot the focus. You can add a little bit of drift so it doesn't quite ever catch focus. That sort of thing is great. Also, the target, there's target smoothing. There's the jolt system, which is a, another uh, amazing part of the shake system, which adds a little bit of that. This was something that when I explained it to Chris, he's kind of like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> so I said, I'm like, I want like, so I want the shake. But if you watch any movie or cop drama or any of those sorts of things that, that sort of feel gritty, you're always going to see the camera on a character, on a person, on a shot of a car or whatever. And every once in a while, that camera is going to look like somebody walked up to it and just like bumped it a little bit. And it just kind of loses the frame and like sorts of finds the frame again. And then it might happen again. And I'm like, I really want that. I want that in there built in. And I want to call it like, did we name it together? I can't remember if I already had the name or did we come up with that name? I don't know. It just was natural. I wanted to have a jolt to the camera. Yeah. Like I want the camera to be able to jolt every once in a while. And I want to be able to, to, to be sort of like another layer of that human element. And so we developed the jolt system, which can be triggered either by 
interval, which is every chunk of frames I want it to jolt, or this came from the beta, they wanted the ability to jolt on specific frames, like for instance, something falls in the background or something very specific happens where you want the camera to get jolted, you can actually type in what frame you want that to happen. So um, the jolt system, uh, I, I feel like I didn't even mention the overshoot, which is another fantastic part about Gorilla Cam, the ability to do overshoot. Now people are asking me like, well, what, what does overshoot mean? Well, um, it, it, it kind of means what it says. It's going to overshoot the position, but the, the meaning behind it is a, is a lot. I think um, it it's actually makes more sense. So if you have like a really light camera, like your phone, and you're moving it um, across the room, um, you're not going to have a lot of overshoot. It's a light camera. You can stop your hand pretty quickly. There's not a lot of overshoot in my, when I move my arm very quickly across across the room. Now, if you have like a 30... 40 pound camera, like a big, you know, red camera or Alexa or something, and you try to move that camera four feet in under three seconds, you're not going to be able to stop that thing on a dime. It's going to go over that mark and sort of swing back and you're going to have to like find your framing again. And that's overshoot. That realistic overshoot is built into Gorilla Cam and you can dial it in to make it overshoot a lot, make it overshoot a little bit. So you can really make the camera feel as light as you want or as heavy as you want, but not only with position, but rotation too. So like this is one of the demos that you're going to see when we launch this thing. I built this like UFO shot with this like little cartoony UFO flying around <laughs> and the camera is following the um, this UFO just by targeting it and we have target overshoot. So the camera can overshoot the target and like come back and like try to find it and it it creates a just a really energetic shot that has a lot of like, I don't know, sort of fun uh, realistic quality to it with without a lot of work and I don't know. I could go on and on, dude. I'm, <laughs> I've been really excited. I'm excited to get this thing out. Well, there's. I want to throw in it's a couple extra details in there as well. We've been working really hard on this for for a while, but that that smoothing and that overshoot concept have been applied to everything. You already mentioned it is on position. It's also on rotation. It's also on targeting. It's also on your zoom. If you've keyframed a zoom, it will. You can overshoot your zoom. You can smooth out your zoom. If you have a targeted focus, you might have a keyframed focus or you can drop in a target for your focus. You can overshoot that as it goes past or it can smooth it out as it goes past. Uh, so you, the smoothing concept of the overshooting is built throughout the entire plugin. And then the other big giant thing is we created a whole bunch of presets Sets. There, how many are there? There's like 60 presets built in. A lot of of us going through trying to come up with like all these practical and some of them just for fun presets to immediately have different vibes for your camera, like a nice subtle cell phone handheld vibe. And the different ones, you're in the middle of an earthquake, and there's you have the ability to go and find one of those that you like and tweak it to what you want it to be. You have the ability to build, use any of the sliders, make any kind of setup that you want and then save it yourself in your own library. Not only saving your own library, but be able to send a camera preset you made to other people by exporting it out. So yeah, that, that was a huge thing for me from coming from production. I had a few things that absolutely had to happen. So the first one, presets, absolutely has to happen and be able to save and share those. And Chris and, and the team really nailed that. And then the other thing was the ability to bake it out 
quickly and easily. So if I want to send it to a farm or I want to send it to another team member that doesn't have the plugin yet and be able to do that pretty easily. And so we have two bake systems built right into the plugin. And within, you know, two seconds, you just bake your thing out and you're done. Like you don't have to like, put any sort of weird tags or do anything strange. It's a very, very simple, simple thing. But we didn't talk about our favorite, our favorite button, or at least maybe it's, maybe it's my favorite button. I like it a lot too. So, and this was another thing that I think Chris probably thought I was crazy about, but um, I was like, here, I want, and it, it came from other, uh, other, like, I think other software that I've used that have done this. And I wanted this button that, um, that, was going to be called I'm feeling lucky. And I wanted this button to essentially load randomly a usable gorilla cam every single time I clicked it. So I want to be able to like reference my original camera and then keep hitting a button while it's playing until I find one I like and then I hit stop. You know what I love about that? So I, I don't want to interrupt, but, but, but that button speaks to so much about what we were saying today where there's a language of film that we all know and all these little details and the wiggles and how it overshoots and the size of the camera and all those things we just mentioned, but understanding that language and speaking it fluently is hard. There's a lot of it. And if you're new to this and you're, and you're, you're hearing all, everything we talked about today and you're like, how do I learn all this stuff? What's nice about I'm feeling lucky is you could just have your scene playing and click it. And you just wait until your emotions tell you that you have the right camera. Like you don't have to rely. You can, you could, you could take the internal film language that we all have and use it to find the right camera for your scene, which is fun because if you let it play and you hit, I'm feeling lucky. And all of a sudden the camera's going crazy and, and what you're trying, the emotion you're trying to bring to your audience is something more languid and beautiful and serene and slow and waterfalls you know, just by clicking that button, that's not it. And now all you have to do is click on feeling lucky again and go, okay, that's a little bit slower. This is closer to where I'm going. And to me, that's the power of if any plugin is the ability to work out of the box very quickly and get you like super close to where you need and then give you all the sliders and buttons to like dial it in to be perfect to exactly yeah. what you or your client want. That so was that's, that's, that's my favorite way. button too. <laughs> no, that's that's a good way of putting it, dude. Because like, yeah, you. Here's the thing: like, we have this unique ability because we do 3D that we can try a million things before we decide on the one that we want. Now, in real life, you have to be way more prescriptive. You have to be mo way more thought out and have storyboarded it all out and know know exactly what you want, so you're not wasting everybody's time and money on set. Well, guess what? We do 3D, and it's like. We have you can change the lens as many times as you want. It doesn't really change. You can move fast. So that I'm feeling lucky button. You don't have to know, like Nick said, like exactly what you want to do before you start to do it. You can hit that button and just get ideas. Like how, that's how I use it. Like I'll get an I'll hit it, and maybe a shot that I thought was going to be more of like a languid, and I have a I have a reference camera that maybe has two keyframes on it that kind of emulates a dolly move i might think like okay i just want to like sort of make smooth that out and maybe a little bit of wiggle to it and then i hit i'm feeling lucky and i stumble on something that's maybe a little bit more frenetic and all of a sudden it feels a little bit more um like voyeuristic which 
adds a completely different level of emotion to the shot. I would have not found that had I just opened it up and started playing with the sliders. So that, yeah, one of my favorite things and a lot of tools we do, and I definitely feel in this one is we open up, uh, tools can open up design spaces. Like f for me, ever using a camera, like the most I'd ever kind of do is throw a vibrate tag on something where it's like, okay, there's a little bit of extra shake because right around here, there's like a, an asteroid hits nearby and it's going to shake a little bit. So okay, that's very intentional, but it's such a pain in the butt effectively to go through and grab a camera, keyframe it to a new position and then get a whole bunch of like, you're going to iterate through and try and get different layered up noise, like different shakes going on. It's a big pain. We're here. It's so easy and so quick to try different presets to try. I'm feeling lucky to cycle through these different things and find them that you've now opened up a, a whole avenue of exploration that you didn't really have access to. That wasn't, it was such a, it took so long to do a setup to be able to explore that range that you just wouldn't really do it. And now it's so easy to do it that, you're going to do it every time. And one of my most favorite things in Gorilla Cam is after you've been using it a bunch and you've got a shot and there's a character running and the camera's chasing after him and you got a nice big shake going. And then you click off of the Gorilla Cam back to your reference cam and you just see like this static shot, like just this camera just moving in a straight line behind him. You're like, oh my, I didn't realize how much was being added to this until it was gone mm -hmm. and then and then you turn it back on it's like wow this there's so much energy added to it the camera's alive now it's it's not just this dead thing sitting there yeah. and almost every shot i'm tinkering around with is a static camera like there's no movement on the camera by default and you just add in this tiny little bit of movement it's about um, not that you hit it right there like dead no more dead cameras like you can have a lock off that's totally fine like a lock lock offs happen and they're in almost every film, but it doesn't have to be a complete lock off. It could just have just this most subtle, tiny bit of drift because a dead camera feels a lot different than a camera with just a tiny bit of movement. It's a completely different feeling. And, and that's really like when I, when, when I started thinking about Gorilla Cam, I wanted it to be easy enough to just pick up and, and like start putting something on it and, and get a good result. But I also wanted it to be, as powerful as it could be. So the power users could like jump in and, and get exactly what they want out of it. Because coming from production, I know sometimes you're not going to get what you want out of hitting I'm feeling lucky or one of the, you know, 80 presets that we've got. You want to be able to do it yourself. And so that was one thing that was like, we exposed a lot of this stuff so that you could do those things. And, and that's another really big, I think, important part of it. But yeah, doing the, what I, always bothered me about trying to do these sorts of camera moves in, in traditional ways, which you can, by the way, you can do all of these things by hand. You can do them tediously and, and, and thoughtfully throughout your process. But what I like about Gorilla Cam is that if you, because it works on a reference system, it's referencing a camera that you've already created I am not shackled to working a specific way or having to have thought about my specific workflow prior to working on my shot. I don't have to think, oh, I should have built a custom camera rig for this because I want it to do this and I want it to do that. Oh, I should have started with this vibrate tag or this whatever. No, you can just start with whatever camera you want. You can open up a scene from, from two years ago and play with it with Gorilla Cam, have three Gorilla Cams with com completely different looks. You're not tied down by that, which is really important to me because when I'm working on a scene, I don't know right off the bat what sort of camera rig I should have. I just want to start working and start playing. 
Yeah, I think it, I think you guys both hit it. It's it's a tool that allows you to experiment early on, try different looks, but also has the power to do it. And and I'll I'll just I'll ask you guys to do this. No matter what part you are in your career, if you're looking at it, like if you're using cameras and animating every day, I think you. <laughs> at the most important. You owe it to yourself to tick around. I'm not sure how <laughs> sentence is going to end. Um, but the uh, one last tiny detail I want to throw in, which was actually in your original pitch, Chad, was the concept of slow, medium, and fast, which we kind of haven't mentioned. If you oh, yeah. To hit that yeah. really quickly. And, and I pre if, you've, if you've hung around this long to listen to us like go on about a tool that we've been developing, you can tell we love it. And that's why oh, we're, we're talking excited. about it. And so, yeah, the slow, the slow, medium, fast was was born out of... Um, me constantly using vibrate tags with three different frequencies of shake on them uh, because that's what I wanted when I wanted to create a realistic sort of secondary shake. Um, you, wanna, you want that, that control over something that's moving languid, something that's sort of in between, and then something that's sort of fast. And so all of our uh, shake systems or the shake system in both rotation and, and position have these three different speeds so that you can really nail down to the nuance of exactly the sort of shake that you want. And it's not, I just want to reiterate, this is not just a camera shake plugin. That's not, that's part of what Gorilla Cam is. And I think it's easy for people to sort of say, oh, it's a camera shake plugin. Well, not really. It has the shake. That's a big part of it, powerful part of it. But for me, it's about that in combination with the smoothing and the overshoot um, a, along with the, the baking that makes it a, a camera solution for me. Yeah, sorry about the dropout there. I just, I just was uh, urging people to go check out the page. Um, by the time this goes up, it should be live, and you know, go check out Gorilla Cam. And it, no matter where you are in your career, go check out the A/B tests that Chad did on this page, just to see the difference between a regular animated 3D camera and something with more emotion to it. To start to understand not just the Gorilla Cam side of this, but the entire. Uh, part of this uh, uh, podcast, which is about adding emotion and picking the right lens, go watch the AB stuff and you'll learn, you'll learn about how cameras move and how to pick the right camera just from that. So uh, I'm, I'm super excited to have this out. And uh, by the time this goes up, it should be live. We'll put a link down in the description and in the show notes, uh, check out Gorilla Cam, um, put a lot of effort into this. And, and like most of our tools, they're designed to quickly get you up and running and also like i said give you the power to dial in just the right look so if nothing else go click on the page and check out some of the a b tests and the little videos uh that we have they're really compelling um and show you the power of a camera as well so um exciting day big day camera yep. it's exciting um we're gonna put let me put this in the show notes right now and is there anything else uh before we wrap up here for today no, I'm happy. No, I'm happy. I'm excited. Guys, it's always cool to like get a new plugin out. And, um, you know, I think back, we just had our ninth anniversary uh, of, of our tutorials. That was our last episode was talking about nine years of tutorials. And it's also, you know, in a lot of ways, nine years of, of plugins and, and trying to help out. Whenever I learned a new plugin, whenever I saw a new plugin that was opening up a new world for me, it allowed me to think in a, in a more creative way. And, and that's what I hope that we're doing with, with, with our side of making plugins. And I, I think we did that with Gorilla Cam. So thanks to you guys for working so hard on it. I'm already using the heck out of this thing. And uh, I hope you guys will too. So I appreciate it. 
And if that's it, uh, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I apologize again for my uh, my connection, but uh, hopefully uh, pretty soon we'll get that sorted out. So thanks again, guys. And we'll see you in another Grayscale Gorilla podcast real soon. Bye, everybody. <laughs>